0: In the same way, as what he just said about Christ and the church here in verse 28, Paul now says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When we talked over the last four weeks about private worship, we noted that there is no real clear injunction, thou must read your Bible on so much basis, and thou must pray so many times in the day, but everywhere in the scripture we see those examples, and we find teachings from our Lord Jesus about secret prayer, and we find him commending Mary for sitting at his feet and listening to his word, and Nathaniel, who was sitting under the tree having a quiet time when Jesus called him. And lots and lots of other places. The psalmist talks about meditating on God's word. And we find Jacob right before he he meets his wife. He's out in the field and he's looking up at the stars. And and Genesis says he's meditating probably on the promises that God gave to Abraham that his descendants would be as the stars of the sky in number. And so while there was no clear injunction regarding um, private worship, In one sense, we can say there is not as much in the Bible about family worship as some in our tradition have acted as if there is. And yet, on the other hand, there are clear commands. There are very clear commands. One such command is what we've just read in Ephesians. Husbands are to wash their wives with the water of the word. Fathers are to bring their children up in the training and admonition of the Lord, not provoking them to wrath, but nurturing them. And then, of course, in the Old Testament, this is firmly rooted, and it's, it's built off of what God tells Israel through Moses, Deuteronomy 6, when your children rise up, when they sit down, when they walk by the way, you're to diligently teach them my precepts. And you find it through the Psalms, that we may teach a generation to come, Psalm 107, and everywhere else, that the, the command from God to Christian families is to be worshiping him according to his word as families, in the home, that the chief obligation of parents is not to make sure that their children get a good education and succeed in life. Contrary to what Hollywood tells you, contrary to what newspapers and magazines and everything else tells you, contrary to what a lot of churches tell you, that is not your chief goal as a parent. And I know that because Paul, in the only place that he talks about raising children, says... That we are to bring them up in the discipline, the nurture, and instruction, the teaching of the Lord. And it's the same idea about husbands nurturing their wives and washing them with the water of the word. And so yes, the end result may be that our children get good jobs and they excel. Or it may be that they have terribly hard lives and suffer. That they, like the Hebrews, may have every possession taken away from them, their bank accounts emptied, all kinds of affliction like Job placed upon them. But they fall down and they worship and they say, blessed be the Lord who gives and takes away. So the end goal is not to make sure that your children are financially secure, educated, well off, possessing good jobs, as important as all those things may be. The end goal is to make sure that we have families that are glorifying God in all their situations, good and bad hard and easy, prosperous and in want. And that's the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. Now, it's interesting that Paul, here in Ephesians 5, is setting this chapter in the context of spiritual warfare. I always found that fascinating, that at the beginning of this book in Ephesians, he makes the statement in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual gift in the heavenly places in Christ. That's how he starts the book. He ends the book in chapter 6 by saying, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Engaged in spiritual warfare in the heavenly places. Where does that manifest itself first in this world and manifest itself first generally in our homes and our marriages with our children? That's where the spiritual warfare begins. That's where most of the battle is fought. I think it's interesting that Paul intentionally juxtaposes the things he does here in chapter 5 and 6, I think, in order of priority. First, the order of priority in family worship is husbands and wives. We very much reverse that in our day. That's the natural inclination. Just like in Genesis, it says that part of the curse was that that the man would want to be heavy-handed now with his wife. He would want to rule over her, and she'd want his position, that everything is turned upside down. So I think oftentimes, and sadly even in the church a lot of times, it's children first, children first. It's all about the children, and so then the children leave home. The parents get divorced. This has happened to tons of my friends. Parents stayed together until they were 19 years old and then got divorced because they made an idol of their children. They didn't nurture their wives. They didn't wash their wives with the water of the word. They didn't care for them as for their own body. And so you see how Paul is putting that first. That's the order of priority. Notice verses 25 through 33 Paul repeatedly uses different ways of saying this and he ends by saying, let each one of you love his wife as himself and see that the wife respects her husband. Notice in verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so the way that Jesus cares for his people is the model for the way that husbands care for the wife. What's the chief way Jesus cared for his people? He gave his life for her. How do we know that? Because he gives us his word. Jesus then says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so the foremost responsibility of husbands, in addition to providing for their wives' needs financially, is that they wash them with the water of the word. And that is so often the last thing that husbands do, even Christian husbands. And yet that is the foremost thing that we're called to do. And so family worship begins with husbands and wives. And then it moves to parents to children. And notice as Paul moves into chapter 6 that he gives the children the um, command to obey their parents and the Lord with the promise. But then notice verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I don't think... That our big problem today is that we are consumed with family worship. I do not think that's the big problem. I don't think the big problem today is that we have a lot of fathers in the church that are doing an hour and a half of family worship every day wearing their kids out. I think the big problem is they're not doing it. And that's why we're doing this, so that we would be doing that to encourage it not to heap guilt but to say this is this is pleasing to the lord this is good for our children this is good for our grandchildren it's good for us as husband and wife it's what we need it's what god has appointed as a means to to walk us to glory that day in and day out returning to the scriptures and to the lord and to the gospel together as a family and yet it's interesting to me that that In the only place where Paul gives fathers this direct command to to rear their children in the training and the admonition of the Lord, he gives this warning, not provoking your children to wrath. And as I started thinking about this, I started to think, you know, I don't think this is just applicable within the context of families that do family worship. I believe that every father has a propensity to provoke their children to wrath for appearances, for reputation's sake, for all the wrong reasons, because they feel like their pride's been wounded, because they feel like we need to be able to boast about the children, not just in the context of family worship. I'm going to talk about how this applies in the context of family worship, but, but in raising your children, fathers have a propensity to be heavy-handed, serious, Minded men have a propensity to be heavy-handed. That's the sinful twisting of what God ordains. I have to read this to you, and it's it's a little bit lengthy, but it's the best thing I've ever heard on this. And I was at a conference. Anna and I were at a conference in 2007 months before Micah was born, and so I was listening attentively. And um, Peter lowback and Sinclair Ferguson were doing a family conference at the church we were at, um, and. I remember thinking, I want everything I heard there to be true in my marriage. And this week, preparing this, as I, as I wrote this out and listened back to that lecture, I thought, wow, how miserably I failed, how miserably fall, far I've fallen short from what i wanted to be true. But I want to read this to us because I think it's helpful. Ferguson says, the first thing Paul says in Ephesians 6 is, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And he seems to be suggesting here that in the, the context— Of the authority that a father has, the recognition that that authority that a father has is the authority of one who is first of all personally submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking to see in his life the lineaments of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ wrought in his being, then one thing that ought to be true universally of all Christian fathers is that there is a kind of gentle firmness in the way we bring up our, our children, that there is a sweetness of administration of fatherly responsibility and authority, that there is something about that, that father that begins to make it something of a pleasure for a child to have such a father to obey, especially when that child struggles with his or her own sin and needs to subdue it in order to obey the wisdom and words the earthly father has given to them. And so there's a word here for us, he says, I wonder, actually, if there's a word here particularly for us in our kind of community where how we parent is so important in some of our lives where we want as rigorously and as fully as possible to apply biblical principles to our parenting. Was it that the Apostle Paul realized that while we ourselves, that the virtue is seeking to apply biblical principles and biblical truths in our parenting, we may actually do We may actually do that while we ourselves lack the spirit of the biblical truths. I think I have seen fathers, this really hit me, I think I've seen fathers insisting on a level of sanctification in their children that I rather suspect is lacking in the level of sanctification they insist on in themselves. I want all of us to think about that. There are fathers who insist on a level of sanctification for their children that they do not insist on For themselves, In which case, Ferguson says, they are not exercising their covenant faithfulness to their children in the way which they are rearing them, but their fleshly domination over them. And they cannot really be interested in their children's spiritual advance if, as a matter of fact, that kind of advance is something they have resisted in their own lives. At the end of the day, what they are really interested in is the pride of the flesh that enables them to boast about how their children are doing the next time they send out the next Christmas letter. Now, I know that's wordy, but I think that is the most important thing before we talk about anything in family worship. Why have I spoken to fathers? Because Paul speaks to fathers, because God speaks to fathers, because at the end of the day, I have to give an account for what I did as the man God put over the home in which he put me. My wife doesn't have to answer in the same way that I do. Some women don't like that, it's a relief. You will be held less accountable. I don't know why you wouldn't like that. (laughs) The thought that I am going to be held absolutely accountable for what happens in my home is a frightening thought at times. And yet, I think what Paul says and what Ferguson has highlighted is that Paul gives this injunction, not provoking your children to wrath, Because the propensity, when we start to take seriously how am I going to parent my children in the context of family worship, because then he gives the positive, bringing them up in the nurture and training and administer of the Lord is that there's an abuse in our character and our spirit, and that we first have to be, and this goes back to private worship, we first have to be fed, we have to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, we have to be committed to the Lord Jesus before it's going to be a benefit to our family and family worship. There have been many times I have done family worship just out of duty, and when my kids aren't paying attention or squirming, I get upset. I get frustrated because my heart's not right. And that's sin, and that falls under the same condemnation of what Paul says to fathers here, not provoking your children to wrath negatively, positively bringing them up in the nurture and the training of the Lord. Now, I'll say this, um, it takes intentionality. Um, I have a friend, and I'm not sure he coined this phrase, but he says to me a lot, and I've started thinking he's right, what people think about with regard to the Lord's Day, corporate worship, is the greatest test of their spiritual condition. How people view the Lord's Day, if they view it as a hindrance to me being able to go out and do what I want to do, rather than a delight. We try to train our kids. I got this from Joel Beakey. Um, Beakey would tell his children growing up, and I never heard this, and so I, I instantly was like, we're doing that. What's today? The Lord's Day. What's that? The best day of the week. It's the best day of the week. And as I hear myself saying that to my boys, it trains my heart as a pastor to say, this is the best day of the week. I called Travis today. I said, it's going to be a good day today. It's the best day of the week. Our problem is we look at it as binding and constrictive. We'll come back to that. We do the same thing with family worship. This is going to eat into my time. I've got to do this. I got to... Ah! And then we disobey God. And it shows what we value. It shows what we value. There's nothing sweeter than acknowledging that sin in our hearts saying, Lord, help me, going forward to obey him in leading your wife and children, and then you becoming, men, the beneficiary of having sought repentance and obedience out of faith to Christ, so that as you lead your family, you benefit from God speaking to you and the beautiful praises that you sing as a family together to God. And so... I want to I want to clear away this morning any idea that there's any parent out there who has all this together whose heart is always right. I had a conversation with a number of my close, very close uh, pastor friends at General Assembly this year. We were sitting and talking about all kinds of issues, and this issue came up: and do we obey God um, because it's our duty? Do we do we have to delight in Him in the obedience for it to be obedience? And the, the way that got worked out, one of my friends who's very godly said, there's lots of times I don't want to have family devotions, I don't want to have family worship, and I do it because it's my duty. I'm on the other side of it's my duty, so I need to do it, but I need to get my heart right. So however you do that, it takes minutes of difference. <laughs> you are to do it because it's your duty to God. You're to delight in it because it's one of the best things you can do. I'm a big foodie. I've always been a big foodie. That's why I went into culinary studies in part. Um, And um, there's a joy, there's a joy in eating something amazing that you've taken a long time to prepare. There's something rewarding about that. Nobody likes the preparation. Nobody likes the hard work of preparing food. We We do it because we want to eat it, we enjoy the eating of it. The preparation that fathers do, and, and mothers who are in the military who have to step into that role for a time when their husbands are gone, the preparation, the work that that takes is worth it in the end. It's worth it. It is, I, I am, as, as a young father who, and many of you could come up here and teach me lots of things, so I, I certainly don't have all this worked out, but I, as a young father, find one of the greatest joys when I hear my children quoting scripture that we've labored in family worship to teach them or singing songs that we have labored to teach them. Last night, Eli was walking around with a ukulele without strings singing some of the songs we sing in family worship trying to copy dad. And that's like eating an amazing meal. That's part of the fruit. Um, I love the way the psalmist... And, and this never, ever gets taught properly, and I don't know why. Everybody talks about quiverful. you should have like 60 kids. That's not what it means. It does mean you should have children and see them as blessings and not hindrances and burdens. It, God doesn't put a numeric value on it. If anybody tells you you should have as many as you can, God commands that. That's not true. You should have children if you can have children. You should praise God for all the children that he gives you. But the purpose... The purpose is not to just give you a numeric value quiverful. The purpose of that psalm is that you might learn to shoot those arrows at the enemy. That's, That's what the psalm says, that they shall be arrows aimed at the enemy. And so our goal as husbands with our wives, as parents together with our children, is that we are together preparing for battle. Remember I said this is the context of spiritual warfare the context of spiritual warfare, and it's thick. Listen, all you need to do is spend two hours surfing Facebook, if you have any unbelieving friends, and reading articles that your friends link to on Twitter, and you will see how thick spiritual warfare is in this world. And the context Paul places, husbands, love your wives, cherish them, nurture them, and... And fathers, bring your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord, not provoking them to wrath is in the context of we are engaged in spiritual warfare in the heavenly places. We're in Christ, seated in the heavenly places. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and Satan is seeking to destroy everything good that God is doing. So with that in mind, I want to read um, I want to read a little further from this lecture that I started from. Ferguson now says, and so Paul's first word to Christian fathers is actually a word of self-examination. Am I provoking my children to anger? Do I insist on a pattern of life that is manifest to them even although they couldn't express it in theological terms? It's manifest to them that they have a demand placed in their lives that I have escaped because I happen to be their father. And then I want to read this to you. Ferguson says, I actually think there's a considerable danger in much of the literature I've seen that the actual picture of being a Christian husband comes more from Hollywood than it does from the scripture. It is altogether possible to be a Hollywood style Christian husband and an Amityville style Christian father. That was a house, famous book that said it was haunted from a man who killed thirteen of his kids and a family moved in there and it was a nightmare, famous horror, supposedly nonfiction. That's it's possible for me to, be a, to think that I'm a Hollywood-style Christian husband and actually be an Amityville-style Christian father, lacking this tenderness. Now, isn't that something that the Bible emphasizes again and again and again in our ultimate mother, model of fatherhood? The tenderness of God, listen carefully, especially men, the tenderness of God toward his children, the affection of God toward his children. Paul is saying, let that seep into the lives of your children. If for no other reason than if you do not express the affection of the Heavenly Father, the end result will be that the Heavenly Father himself will be distorted in the eyes of your children. You understand that, don't you? That there is almost inevitably going to be a tendency in the mind of our children's children that they will think of the Heavenly Father first of all in terms of the categories in which they understand their earthly fathers. Now, you know there's an amazing amount of pastoral ministry that goes on behind the scenes in which ministers are sitting people down and saying, you do not get your model of your heavenly father from your earthly father. You need to turn all that on your head and understand that you get your model of the Heavenly Father from the relationship between the Heavenly Father and the Heavenly Son. And you need to see that you've been brought into fellowship with the Heavenly Son in order that you may know and experience His Heavenly Father as it were with a heartbeat that is in tune and in time with His love and affection for His Heavenly Father. But you know, Ferguson says, and I'm almost done, that's a stage beyond where most of our children are where they are at seven or eight years old when we teach them our father not who is at the table but our father who is in heaven the only categories by which to interpret fatherhood that are available to them are you if you're a father and so ferguson is functionally saying that our children are going to translate who god is by virtue of who the dad is here now lest that be too great a weight on you, I'll say a few things. God's grace transforms those wrong opinions as we put ourselves in the scriptures. God is maturing us as fathers. Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So Jesus draws the contrast. He says, you're evil. Will not your heavenly father, who is good, give the Holy Spirit to those who seek him? So Jesus is helping you sift through and helping our children sift through those categories that you're not like the heavenly father in so many ways. But here's what I'd say this morning, just as we kind of wrap this up and then I want questions or comments from any of you. The biggest need as we engage in family worship in husbands and wives together is that we as a family see our need for Jesus Christ as sinners needing a savior. And that we are together putting ourselves under the same standard. And that fathers, while we're laboring to be faithful, and husbands laboring to be faithful with your wives, learn to be patient. Have you ever wondered, men, why why Peter, the Apostle Peter, has to say, don't be bitter with your wife. And Paul has to say, don't provoke your children to anger. Because that's the propensity. That's the natural inclination. When, When I don't get to dominate, the natural inclination is, I get bitter at my wife. I get angry at my children. I provoke them to anger. I take the bull by the horns. And God says, stop doing that. And the solution is, fathers are sinners who need a savior. Now, one of the most beautiful things, I'll say this um, emphatically this morning, one of the most beautiful things that any father and any husband can do is ask his wife and his children for forgiveness when he sins. And you know what? It's one of the rarest things in some of the strictest theological homes. I've experienced that. I've seen that in my life. Men that know tons of theology are oftentimes the last men to go to their wife and say, will you forgive me? I sinned. And to go to their children, because at the end of the day, it's not a head issue. It's a pride issue. And God is is working to break down pride. And you know what? This is one of the beautiful things. As painful as it is, and it's painful, it is painful when God is breaking down your pride. All of us, men, women, children. But you know, one of the places God does that is in the home, where the sin manifests itself and repentance has to happen. If it doesn't, it's going to end very badly. But when God grants that repentance, it's sweet, and you grow, and you learn, I can't talk to my wife that way. I can't be harsh with my children when we do family worship. When I fail to do family worship, I can't live in guilt. I can't heap guilt at my spouse when they're not doing family worship as they are. And you learn together to trust God for grace to do what God has called you to do in Christ. And so I think that there's this ongoing Application of the gospel, and that's what I wanted to lead with, even though we're talking about who's most responsible in spheres. It's the application of the gospel in your family. And if that's happening, husbands are going to want to be shepherding their wives better and nurturing them as their own body. Fathers and mothers are going to want to be shepherding their children gently and lovingly and not harshly. Not trying to exercise fleshly domination. Um... I want to encourage you, and we're going to talk about a lot more in family worship. This was sort of just the touchstone of entering in on this subject. I want to encourage you all to be praying that God would give you grace to, to seek to live this kind of obedience out in light of the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's gospel-driven. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Why? Because God the Father doesn't provoke you to wrath. He gave his son for you so that he might redeem you, so that you might know his love and affection and tenderness, and then show that to your children. Um, You know, I praise God. I praise God that he gives grace that undoes so many bad things, but so often the damage that is done because people fail to do this, is sadly irremediable. There's always that tension between nurture and grace, and we learn learn the example of our parents. We learn the example of our parents. 25 years of sitting under my parents, I learn all the good and all the bad. It's a frightening thought, yet it can be an encouraging thought. If we model for our children, We model for them. Um, A word to parents with grown children and with grandchildren. You know, I meet a lot of people that have regrets, and I I like to say to them, you know, go to the Lord. Say, Lord, I want to be the parent and the grandparent and the husband that you want me to be today. Jesus would say as much, wouldn't he? Today's the day of salvation. Today is a new day, new mercies every morning. Don't waste another day. The applications may be very different in how that works itself out. Don't live in guilt and condemnation. Go to the cross. Go to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness where failures happen. We're all in the process of doing that. Parents with grown children no less than parents with little children. So, again, the gospel is everywhere at work in every application of this. Um, But let's be a congregation that's committed to doing these things in our homes. Um, Questions or comments? Just for this foundational section. And we'll get into practical, very hands-on, how can we do this next week? Yes? I thought I'd ask, um, so, so you've, you've talked about the families that has a spiritual unit that, that, um, that has its own spiritual daily life. How does that relate with the greater spiritual life of the church congregation that they belong to? Yeah, that's a great question. So Jeff is asking, how does the Family, I think, generally relate to the greater spiritual family of God. Um, There's a lot being written on this today. I'll say these things, and and I can qualify these the best I can as I'm able. Um, Church first, then family. I think that's a clear biblical principle. Um, Family doesn't trump church. Now, obviously, you can have an imbalance You can have an imbalance anywhere. You can make an idol out of your activities in the church, especially ministers, and neglect your family. So let me give that caveat. But I think the far greater problem is families that want to take seriously these things oftentimes make family worship worship of the family. That was a phrase I coined a couple months ago that I think for some people, and this is rare, but I think especially in the Reformed church, family worship can become worship of the family. Um, and so I think Jesus said that, right? If anybody loves father, mother, wife, children more than me, can love the bank account more than Jesus? Clearly, you could love your child who's worth more than your bank account, right? Um, the other reason I would say it, and there's some proponents that say, well, the family is the church is a family of families, and so family is most important, and then these families get together. Well, the church is more than a family of families. The church is the family of God, made up of. Widows, singles, some who choose to be singles for Jesus' sake or are given the gift of singleness, whatever that is. I'll never experience that. Um, (laughs) Families, um, parents that are barren and that can't, for whatever reason, get away to adopt. So the church is more than just families with 16 kids. So I think we always want to guard on the, right, the pendulum always swings in everything, right? The pendulum always swings. Neglect the family, so then we swing the other way, worship of the family. And somehow we got to hold it here, gospel-centered, church-focused. Have your family healthily involved in the life of the church on every level. You know, one of the best things I can do for my children is take them to ministries of the church. When we're out engaged playing music in the Christmas parade or going to the Gabriel's house or them, and and as they get old enough to come to Bible study, and I think they can come at a fairly young age. It's one of the best witnesses you can do. My dad did that for me. My dad used to take me, had us engaged in all kinds of evangelism and mercy ministry and, and rescue missions and had us in church regularly. And it was the best example, not staying at home, having church at home which is never okay unless you're sick. There are legitimate times you can't make it to church, but let's just have church at home is not biblical. Bedside Baptist with the Holy Comforter is not in the scriptures. (laughs) Front porch Presbyterian doesn't exist. (laughs) So I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of rambled there and got all emotional and just poured out my frustrations. What would you say in the way of maybe an encouragement our husbands would find themselves in a situation where maybe their wife is more more knowledgeable than they are they feel inadequate. great question um, and that happens wife is converted husbands not then he's converted that might be the situation the wife is much further along well if she's a godly woman she's gonna her goal is to help him become the leader right so Peter even says wives if you have a husband that doesn't obey the word win him without a word when he sees your trace conduct there's power. In the godliness of a godly woman, there's power in that. God invests that in spiritual power. Um, And I think, and I've seen this in this congregation. I want to commend the husbands in this congregation right now. I have seen in this congregation in a way I've rarely seen in a small church. Husbands come to me when they have a difficult situation they're dealing with. And they're like, what does the Bible say about this? Do you have anything to read on this? And they may not be the most theologically astute, but what they're doing is they're they're striving to be the leader, and that's a beautiful thing. And then they go home. There's a reciprocal wisdom, right, in that kind of relationship. The more spiritually minded woman's going to go tell her friends, "My husband's amazing. He searches these things out." And there's this, there should be this. And then he's like, "My wife is so amazing." And every day. never happens like that because of sin to that degree. But that's what should happen. That there's this reciprocal love and honoring and building up and. And it takes patience, right? And gentleness. And what Ferguson said, we need that gentleness and that spirit of meekness. Um, So is that helpful? Any other questions? Well, I did not do this to discourage anyone. So if these things are not a part of your daily or weekly activities, this is just a big encouragement instruction for these to become so. I need you to encourage me. I need to encourage you together as a congregation, as we seek to be godly husbands and wives and parents and children. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that you are patient and merciful with us, that you are a God of infinite love for your people, that you have said that you love us even as you loved your own son, which is hard for us to imagine. And we thank you, Father, that you gave your son for us, that you might forgive us and cleanse us, that you would build us up in him, that you would seat us with him in the heavenly places, that you would give us grace, that we as fathers might seek to love our wives as Christ loved the church, and wives honor their husbands as the church honors the Savior, and parents shepherd their children, and fathers bring their children up in the nurture and training of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace We cannot do this. We do not have the resources in ourselves. We pray, our Father, that you would help us and that you would make us a church that is thriving in private family and public worship. Please prepare us to worship you this morning in corporate worship. We pray that you'd be present with us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.